Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our final episode of 17th Century Warfare. It's been a really fun ride over the last few months, and, well, I suppose over a year as well, because the way we've been releasing these episodes hasn't really been straightforward or clever. But we've done our best, and we've reached the end of a story here, which really serves as the prequel to the proper narrative series on the Thirty Years' War. So if you're a bit confused as to what our plan is... From the beginning of next year, we will be starting that narrative, and I'm really, really excited to sink my teeth into it. Of course, you should be aware, if you weren't aware already somehow, that we do have a book coming out on the Thirty Years' War, which is going to gather all of this material together in a very hopefully accessible and hopefully enjoyable format, which you will be happy to feast your eyes upon as much as you're happy to feast your ears upon this audio content here. We are nearing the end of 2019, and, well, I mean, there's no other way to say it other than, I guess, the United Kingdom has decided to select a particular Prime Minister for their own. And I've tried to stay away from politics, I'm not going to go into any real detail here, but if you follow me on Twitter, you know how I feel about the subject, and needless to say, I feel crushingly disappointed. I don't really know where we go from here, where the UK goes from here. And no, Ireland is not part of the United Kingdom, so yes, if you are one of those people online, you could say, it's none of your business, Irish man. Keep to your own affairs. But then again, we are a very interconnected world these days, and I would be remiss if I didn't say something, or if I didn't make my opinions clear, at least in some respect. It is a sad day, in my view, for Britain and for British people. I do hope that whatever happens in the future, the Anglo-Irish relationship, the Anglo-American relationship, the Anglo-European relationship will still be salvageable and will still be good, inherently good and decent, and the people will have a chance to actually do well in life. I'm kind of devastated at the moment. I've been drinking an awful lot of tea to kind of compensate for this, and I don't know if you can hear this, but outside there's an awful lot of wind. In fact, it's so windy, I almost see it as the Irish weather is trying to blow the bad taste out of my mouth that the British election has put in there. 
Perhaps that's wishful thinking. But what is not wishful thinking is that if these results have upset you, try and do your best to switch off for the next half an hour or so and enjoy this. Enjoy this as much as you can. And at the end of the day, while it is bad news for those of us that feel this way, I can't put it any more diplomatically than that, but for those of us that don't like the Tories, it's bad news. And we have to put these things in perspective while also realising how serious this news is. So hopefully you can do that. Hopefully you can still enjoy Christmas. Hopefully you can still enjoy time with your loved ones. And hopefully you're not too down with this whole thing. Either way, when diplomacy fails, we'll still be there. And I'll still be doing my level best. Not necessarily to make sense of it all, because who on earth can do that? But at least to keep delivering you this history. So this is the last episode of When Diplomacy Fails for 2019. If you are not a patron, if you are a patron, then make sure to listen to the last episode on Poland is Not Yet Lost, where we are examining, after having looked at the nobility, the Liberum Veto, probably one of the most destructive devices that the nobility made use of. That's to come next week, but right now, I hope you enjoy this episode, our final trip together through 17th century warfare. Thanks so much for your enthusiasm throughout. I hope you have a very safe and very comfortable Christmas and that you face into 2020 with optimism and happiness and a certain amount of bravery. Now, let's get into this. There was no getting around the fact that the 17th century opened with a clash of styles. The Battle of Newport in July 1600 involved a confrontation between the two foremost military powers of the age, the Spanish and the Dutch. This war between the Spanish and Dutch had so shaped and influenced the development of European relations and the development of military technology and tactics. So it was only fitting that the opening of the century, they would put an exclamation mark on what was to come. Having had an impact on European diplomacy, Spanish and Dutch tactics were to have a profound impact on European warfare. Much like the Dutch, the rest of Europe had refrained from emulating the Spanish tertios, recognising that the Spanish had outmatched them in that sphere. But it was far easier for the Europeans to emulate the lessons of the Dutch and their fire-by-rank tactics, especially once the Dutch began releasing a flood of illustrated materials related to these innovations over the next two decades. The French, German, Italian and even Swedish versions of the fire-by-rank drill would all come into their own in the next few years, with Gustavus Adolphus the most famed practitioner of what he had learned from Maurice's example. An important point which was not lost on Geoffrey Parker though, and which we would do well to heed, was the awkward fact that Although progress was made in the field of musket drill, this did not render the vaunted Spanish tertio system of old obsolete. This is a point which we have come back to several times in our 17th century warfare series, but it bears repeating again here. In the 1634 Battle of Nordlingen, Spanish imperial forces decisively defeated the Swedish-German army which had been sent against them. All the while, the Spanish imperial force made use of the Tertio system. In the case of Nordlingen, the old had beaten the new, and muskets were by no means reliable or efficient enough on their own at this point to carry the day. The pike, as much as the cavalry charge, still mattered a great deal, and would continue to make its presence felt 
until the calibre and reliability of firearms increased and the bayonet replaced the pike on the battlefield. Innovations such as these would not occur, at least in France, until the turn of the 18th century when flintlock muskets and socket bayonets became the norm. Geoffrey Parker was also keen to note that the Spanish propensity for training in the 16th century made them the hardened fighting force for which they became famous, but that the Dutch did make it more accessible to the European peers. The accessibility of the new infantry drill, buoyed by a ready-made library of materials which could be used to further the training process, first appearing in 1607 under the watchful eye of Maurice of Nassau's cousin, proved to be one of the Dutch drill's greatest advantages. We need only recall the proliferation of the drill tactics across Europe to see the boon to innovation which these manuals represented. One is reminded of the French case, or by the end of the century the drill became so refined and so rigid that soldiers would be expected not just to hold the line and obey commands, but to move and operate as though stoically disconnected from the world in which they lived, as though they did not see the horrors or experience the traumas of their enemies, even though these things were right in front of their eyes. When we imagine the robotic Roman legionaries and the mechanical unfeeling way in which they replaced their own gaps in the line, the comparison between the legions and the drill becomes even more acute. As we learned, Maurice of Nassau and William Lodwick took a great deal of inspiration from the Roman example and from the superior discipline of the legionary, which enabled him to throw his javelin and then turn, unafraid, to the back of his line as his friend did the same. With the legionary in mind, the drill was conceived and inspired by the larger-than-life Roman example. Maurice attempted to recreate this act with his fire-by-rank drill, and in many respects he succeeded, but even he may not have been able to imagine that it would develop into the system which enabled men to face one another, apparently without fear, and sustain such horrific losses at such close range for prolonged periods as smoke covered the battlefield, the stench of death filled the air, and the cries of wounded men haunted any personal space that remained. Like the legionary of Caesar's Gallic Wars, the soldier would stand unfazed, draw upon his training, and destroy the enemy systematically without fear or remorse. Muskets, appearing in the 1550s and packing a heavier punch than the arquebus, began to enter more common usage and was the preferred firearm by the turn of the century. Muskets were a great deal heavier than their predecessors and required a fork to balance upon, but they did possess the critical stopping power which commanders were so keen to harness. At 300 paces, a musketeer could kill his enemy, a marked improvement upon both the arquebus and the bow and arrow. The rate of fire was still unimpressive though, especially when compared to those older weapons, but this gap in fire rate could be offset by the greater range of the musket, and the convenient fact for commanders and recruiters that a good archer required a lifetime of training to produce the necessary stamina and accuracy, whereas a musketeer could be trained in a week, as Geoffrey Parker noted. The only restriction on the recruiter was the availability of these firearms, which tended to be expensive the more sophisticated they became. (laughs) 
Yet it has to be said that equipping an army of several arquebusiers, pikemen and musketeers was much less expensive than the practice of equipping an army of knights, a fact of war which facilitated larger armies made up mostly of infantry, and a decline in the total importance of the horseman where once he had been the principal arm of the force. Infantry also became more important as the French and Habsburgs fought against one another during the Italian wars of the early 1500s and discovered early on that cavalry made little impact in the tightly packed net of fortresses which they competed for, mostly in northern Italy. These fortresses, embracing the Trace Italienne style, bring our story full circle in a sense, because the importance of infantry increased as the siege became more prevalent. Both the French and Habsburgs found that they needed more men to take these advanced fortresses from one another, and that they could field the larger forces of infantry suited for this task, with less money spent than before. A pikeman, for instance, required a pike, sword and helmet, which cost little more than that man's basic wages for a week, and as Geoffrey Parker noted, In some cases, even this paltry sum could be deducted from the soldier's pay. It must have been a miserable experience for the common soldier, dragging your worn body from one tiresome siege to the next, but for the commander or king, the savings made and lessons learned proved invaluable. Indeed, there is good reason to suppose that, following these Italian wars which ended in 1559, lessons about the importance of infantry in that theatre were exported to the rest of Europe, alongside the new technological innovations inherent in the Trace Italian style. Soon enough, Europeans would copy the Italian model and style and usher in a new era of siegecraft as they did so. With the decline in the importance of cavalry, the affordability of infantry and their requirement of large infantry armies to surround and starve out the new Trace Italian system of fortifications, armies predictably ballooned in size from the middle of the 16th century and would continue to grow for the next few centuries. In addition to the increase in army size came new demands. The French case, for example, demonstrated the chronic need for manpower to actually garrison all of the important fortifications, a task which required at least 40% of the French army's total size at any one time. Along with the rise in army sizes came the pressing question of how to quickly train them in time for war. The Spanish devised a solution whereby 10,000 men would always be present and well-trained for warfare through constant practice and drilling. Because Spain maintained this core of professionals, it was able to meet the challenges to its authority in some very varied theatres in the 16th century, be it in the Mediterranean or in the Dutch Revolt in the Netherlands, or even during Spain's intervention in the Bohemian Revolt over 1619-20. Spain set this example, a kind of prototype for the standing armies which were to follow. Not until the second half of the 17th century would powers as diverse as the English and Austrian Habsburgs field their own standing armies. To maintain these forces though, a bureaucracy of sorts was required and was created where none had existed. This growth in the king's administration facilitated the emergence of several important governing systems, and even while these were focused above all on making war, the precedent had been established.
Paradoxically, even while it became cheaper as a whole to raise the larger infantry armies, war became more expensive as the years progressed. The individual soldier might have become cheaper, but further, greater demands were placed on the overall army, thanks to the increased sophistication of the siege and the logistical complications involved in supplying so many thousands of men. In addition, these increased costs could be blamed on inflation and the high price of food, as much as it could be blamed on the high frequency of war in the 17th century. The Spanish, for instance, did not know a single calendar year of peace in the first half of the 17th century. Between 1500 to 1630, food prices rose fivefold and industrial prices threefold, placing an incredible burden upon the state which few could bear for long. The solution, of course, was to make war less often, but this did not appeal to the belligerent continent during the period. Alternatively, one could acquire loans on credit, and on the expectation of incomes earned two or three years into the future. This process was akin to gambling in a sense, because guaranteed revenues were not always forthcoming, especially if that state was already at war, a victim of invasion, or subject to an untimely revolt. Some states would save up before launching a war, providing them with a kind of bank to draw upon, but the longer the war lasted, the more pressing the need for more money would be. When the facilities for paying for armies broke down, as they would when a state declared bankruptcy, which Spain did three times in the first half of the 17th century, and which France did twice, the armies were then left to fend for themselves. This indeed was the fatal consequence of Europe's financial backwardness. Nobody in Europe, not even Maximilian of Bavaria, possessed by themselves the financial resources required to pay for a 30 years war, and thus it is hardly surprising to note the horrors and ravages of the unpaid underfed armies who were left behind. Rather than mutinying and dispersing into the countryside, armies would keep together in anticipation of the fortunes to come, and in the meantime, they would take what they needed from the people they came into contact with and strip the land bare to feed themselves. In addition, they would levy contributions upon the different principalities or towns they marched past and use these monies to acquire much-needed resources. This tactic of levying contributions in return for a promise to leave the people alone would be repeated during Louis XIV's wars later on in the century and provided that French king's coffers with a much-needed boost, just as had been the case during the Thirty Years' War. Towns and cities were kept informed by the delivery of several newsletters and pamphlets which detailed where armies intended to go and when, so the monies could be accumulated to pay the necessary fees. We should not get too ahead of ourselves, though. The capabilities of some of the wealthier towns and cities to pay contributions did not mean all were in a position to do so. In addition, when armies were on the move, and especially when they were in a hurry, they did not wait to negotiate with a given town for a given sum of money. If the town had been loyal to the enemy in the past, they simply took what they needed and killed or destroyed what was left. This practice was undertaken by Marshal Turenne, Gustavus Adolphus, and Albrecht of Wallenstein in equal measure. There were no exceptions, and little mercy could be expected. Indeed, we need only to recall the example of Magdeburg to be reminded of the barbaric consequences which could await disloyal citizens, who happened to sit on a fruitful town or city when a beleaguered army waited outside.
There was little point in trying to control these starved, angry men who made up such forces, and while Count Tilly was no monster, he could not prevent the kind of vengeance which the soldiers in his employ had been taught to expect. That said, the practice of torching a city, as happened to Magdeburg, was unusual and almost certainly accidental, even just because this ruined the possibility that a returning imperial army in a year's time would be able to find succour within the city's walls. If Tilly had deliberately destroyed Magdeburg, then this veteran commander would have known he was also deliberately destroying his security, his future food supply, and a future source of contributions. In this series, we have learned that even while Europe was nowhere near financially sophisticated enough to pay for them, armies were raised on a scale and with a frequency never before seen, which of course created the terrible conditions that made the Thirty Years' War so infamous. In addition, we have learned that the century was one of immense technological change. Firepower had become increasingly important, a fact seen in Maurice of Nassau's fire-by-rank drill, but such innovations did not supersede the previous century's tactics instant. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spontaneously, Gustavus Adolphus's reimagining of the role of artillery and the reform of each arm of the Swedish army represents changes in the system that can be classified as truly revolutionary. Revolutionary they may have been, but Gustavus's reforms took time, and in the meantime, the Swedish king relied on the tried and tested methods. The case of military revolution which Michael Roberts posited, not to mention the significance which he attributed to the couple of years where Gustavus Adolphus intervened in the Thirty Years' War, have since been subject to re-examination. This has led not merely to a newfound appreciation for the truly revolutionary changes, above all in army size, but it has also clarified Gustavus's more significant innovations. Rather than inventing a new method for making war against his enemies and swelling the army size in order to do it, the Swedish king approached the battlefield with a desire to improve the potential of his men. 
Gustavus's two genuinely more important inventions, those being the powder cartridge and his reimagining of the role of light artillery on the battlefield, were true revolutions in the military sphere, even if the significance of these innovations can occasionally be lost in the alluring image of genius which Gustavus brings to the table. It is true that Gustavus built upon the infantry drill which Maurice of Nassau had supplied. He trained his men rigorously and increased their flexibility by adding to their repertoire several new drills that facilitated firing while standing, crouching or lying prone. He also made the most of lessons learned in defeat and while on campaign against the Poles. Gustavus was certainly an innovator and an immensely capable commander. His reputation should not unduly suffer following a re-examination of the military revolution thesis. Some of the contributions which the Swedish king made would themselves subsequently be built upon and can be classified as revolutionary in their own right. But then one should be cautious not to cling too tightly to such buzzwords. A fact we keep returning to is that not even Gustavus Adolphus's famed reforms were enough to defeat the old Spanish Tertio system in the Battle of Nordlingen in 1634. We are denied a simple case of steady, constant progress, as Habsburg troops, fighting in traditional fashion, inflicted a crushing and decisive defeat on the masters of the new military science, forcing Sweden and her allies to abandon all their conquests in South Germany. Europeans, plainly, still had a great deal left to learn. So is it accurate to speak of a military revolution? Now that we're 15 episodes in, can we answer that question? Well, certainly the new developments in the Trace Italienne and the increased size of armies, with a reliance on infantry and firepower, distinguish the 17th century from what had come before. In league with these changes came new developments, the growth and maturation of a bureaucracy to command and maintain these forces, the gradual appearance of standing armies in several states, a decline in the importance of aristocratic heavy cavalry, the supremacy of the fortress and the siege, and the refinement of siege methods to counterbalance the strong bastion. At the same time, though, we would be wise not to generalise. Western Europe may have seen such innovations take root, but in places where fortresses were less common or administrations less sophisticated, the old ways remained in favour. It is hardly accurate to speak of a European-wide military revolution when the likes of England, Poland, Spain and Russia experienced these innovations so differently. Is there much utility, therefore, in conceptualising a theory like the military revolution for the French, Dutch, Swedes and Habsburgs alone? It would be difficult to argue that the changes which were felt in these states over the 17th century were not incredibly significant, and one could argue that they paved the way for the modernization of European warfare in the centuries that followed, particularly in the honing of the infantry musket drill. However, it is also true that these developments and innovations were adopted or ignored according to the needs and, in some cases, the geography of the states in question. Since it is true that the military revolution emerged from technological innovation, it is reasonable to subscribe to the idea that, as one historian wrote, the role of military technology in history can only be fruitfully defined in relation to interactive factors 
like geography and politics conditioning the environment of early modern warfare. Or, to coin another phrase, the military revolution was what each state made it, according to their immediate needs, traditions and location. We should also take care when considering the term revolution. This suggests that, throughout the 17th century, a fundamental change happened and brought to an end old traditions and processes. On the contrary, it would perhaps be more accurate to speak of the 17th century as a period of ongoing military revolutions. The changes underway in how states approached warfare had not happened, therefore, they were happening and continued to happen throughout the century as states became involved in more wars and confronted new challenges. The historian Clifford Rogers has argued that while the use of the term revolution can be somewhat weighted, it is possible to observe between the years 1510 to 1715 several punctuations, as he calls them, which provided a framework for dividing this 200-year period into several eras. Nor does Clifford stop there. Over the five centuries between 1300 and 1800, Rogers wrote, Europe experienced not one but several military revolutions, even considering land forces alone, each of which dramatically altered the nature of warfare over a short span of time. Rather than a single revolution which brought European arms from point A to point B indeed, innovation and technology waxed and waned over that span of five centuries with remarkable results. It is in these results, however, that some of the problems with the military revolution thesis manifest themselves. How can it be accurate to talk of a military revolution between 1560 to 1660, for instance, but ignore a revolution between 1400 to 1500, when infantry firearms became more prevalent? How, in addition, can it be correct to ignore the earliest appearance of cannon on the battlefield from the early 14th century, which changed how armies approached battle for the first time since ancient Rome revolutionised melee warfare. If one looks hard enough, surely revolutions will be found in the military sphere from the beginning of the Renaissance. So, where is the utility in narrowing one's scope to the era purely from 1560 to 1660? Perhaps it is of little use to do so, especially when Rogers was able to pinpoint four individual revolutions between 1300 to 1800. The Infantry Revolution, when heavy shock cavalry were superseded by the pike and longbow, the Artillery Revolution, which challenged the superiority of the castle, the Artillery Fortress Revolution, which restored the superiority of the fortress and enhanced the power of the defender, and finally, Rogers noted here that the Military Revolution fit into the debate as it brought changes in the drill, in army size and military bureaucratization. We are, Rogers concluded, dealing not with one revolutionary change, but with a whole series of revolutions, which synergistically combined to create the Western military superiority of the 18th century. All that is something of a mouthful, and it is, of course, food for thought as well, but it remains that the question of a military revolution can seem something like splitting hairs. 
Does it truly matter that several revolutions in the military sphere occurred before? Surely when we talk of the military revolution, those that are interested in the debate will appreciate what we refer to. It may seem like a question of semantics, but there is more to the question than that. Consider the fact that, by looking for a military revolution ever since 1957, historians have ascribed intentions and meaning to developments which, at the time, never acquired such significance. Consider also that warfare was a constantly changing beast. This is arguably seen clearest in the development of cavalry tactics, which changed consistently throughout the 16th and 17th centuries. Thus, Maurice of Nassau's infantry drill was imagined as a response to Spanish superiority in the Tertio system, and the Dutch need to harness as much stopping power as possible from its soldiers. By the end of the century, the use of the drill had changed. This was not the tactic used solely by a desperate, rebellious republic, but a constantly evolving and debated method of meeting the enemy. As the technology of the firearm became more sophisticated, so too did the drills which involved the weapon and the potential stopping power of their manoeuvres. Maurice of Nassau, of course, did not develop the drill or publish his illustrated manuals in order to fulfil a certain theory. He acted and reacted according to the demands placed upon him. If we are not careful, we may forget the actual causes of Maurice's reforms and view them instead in terms of the purpose they serve for satisfying the terms of the military revolution. This danger of viewing history backwards in a sense is a real one, as Rogers concluded. By attempting to subsume the innovations of five centuries into a single phenomenon, we may be imposing an artificial teleological unity onto a series of inherently distinct separate developments, and in doing so, we may be clouding our understanding of a critically important area of history, an area which fully deserves to be studied through the clearest possible lens. Perhaps the listener may perceive the military revolution merely as an artificial construct and of little use either in helping us understand the developments of 17th century warfare or the significance of the Thirty Years' War. Lest we forget, Michael Roberts was not criticised merely for inventing this misleading picture of straightforward cause and effect development. His conceptual framework has also been criticised as inaccurate. Thus, Geoffrey Parker, by far the most familiar challenger of the military revolution thesis, argued convincingly that Roberts had overemphasised the importance of Gustavus Adolphus at the expense of French, Dutch and Habsburg developments, underemphasised the importance of siege warfare, and put the starting date of the revolution perhaps half a century too far forward. Was there anything Michael Roberts did right? Well, as we have also discerned, the actual force of the revolution in the period which Roberts identifies remains subject to debate, since the innovations and advancements which it implied were not felt evenly across the continent. Furthermore, political context must be taken into account when considering the new innovations on offer. If we consider just our limited window of the Thirty Years' War, then the actual extent of the revolution appears even less significant. While it is famous for its pitched battles, by the latter phase of the Thirty Years' War, military encounters took the form either of sieges or of bloody mobile showdowns with an abundance of cavalry on both sides, 
As the historian Simon Adams, in his study on the confluence of politics with tactics, noted, Any final conclusions about the military revolution must therefore take its political context into account. It was the Thirty Years' War that led to the expansion of armies, not the converse. The relatively minor advances in weaponry and tactics between the development of effective small arms fire in the early 16th century and the replacement of the pike by the bayonet at the end of the 17th meant that on the tactical level, changes were largely variations on a theme. Similarly, the relatively limited size of field armies gave to none of the combatants a decisive advantage. All of these objections, however, should not mean that the military revolution theory is completely useless to us. It remains impossible to deny that the innovations implemented during the 17th century, in the infantry drill and artillery especially, had a profound impact upon the way in which Europeans made war. Rightly or wrongly, war remained central to the development of Western culture, technology and theory, as Geoffrey Parker opined. War, which in the 17th century was almost as much the normal state as peace, was a major catalyst of European life and one of the hinges on which the history of the continent turned. And war had certainly changed since the previous century. The Thirty Years' War provided perhaps the most ideal testing ground for the new ideas, while its furies and high costs compelled statesmen and leaders to harness as much as they could from their populations. Considering his successive challenges to Michael Roberts' thesis, we may be surprised to note that Geoffrey Parker claimed that he had failed to dent the basic thesis. This basic thesis, in Parker's view, was that warfare in early modern Europe was revolutionised, and this had important and wide-ranging consequences. Notwithstanding the issues one may have with his approach, one struggles to deny that from 1660, immediately after the period set down by Roberts, Europeans made war in a vastly different manner than they had in the beginning of the preceding century. Furthermore, as we have stated before, one of the great benefits of this thesis for scholars and enthusiasts alike is the veritable flood of literature which emerged following its publication. We are left with nothing close to a consensus, but instead with something arguably more valuable, a treasure trove of published works that examine detailed specific elements of the thesis and which apply it to European states in the period on a scale never before seen. This, in my mind, is the true utility of the military revolution idea. We owe Michael Roberts a debt because his thesis facilitated, or perhaps provoked is a better term, responses from historians which otherwise would have never materialised and which fleshed out the historiography of the period. As one historian put it, It is true that the problematic of military revolution opens the possibility of researching further into questions of historical needs of societies and the mentalities of the peoples involved in warfare. At the same time, detailed military history and even salted narratives do enrich social history immensely. While it has divided opinion, there can be little doubt that the military revolution thesis has enriched our understanding of social and of military history. Historians were compelled to answer Michael Roberts' challenge, and because of this, the historian who comes to the debate now, over 60 years since it first began, 
will be armed with a wide variety of studies and findings. Before Roberts presented his inaugural lecture on the subject of the military revolution, it was possible for Sir Charles Oman to claim in 1937 that The 16th century constitutes a most uninteresting period in European military history. Before 1957, indeed, the general understanding of 17th century warfare and its key lessons were largely unknown, but now historians and enthusiasts have never been so well informed. Considering this, perhaps it would not be too much of a stretch to speak of another revolution, this one in 17th century military history, which emerged from the font of debate initiated by Michael Roberts six decades ago. As John A. Lynn assiduously phrased it, trying to understand 17th century European history without weighing the influence of war and military institutions is like trying to dance without listening to the music. During the course of this series, we have looked at a great deal of the music, a great deal of examples from the different actors in Europe in the 17th century, and with each new example, we reached deeper into this truth. In the background to the diplomatic intrigue, fascinating characters and weighted issues were the battles. These battles housed the warfare, the gunpowder, the victories, the defeats, the honour and the fame, which added so much colour and drama to the whole experience, and which placed an exclamation point upon the bloody process of the 17th century, which warfare was. At the core of this process were several lessons which had bubbled to the surface, lessons which were supposed to make killing easier and more efficient, and which would only be built upon later on in the century. Now that we have been introduced to this wide range of case studies, of key battles, and of revolutions in tactics and theory, it is high time, history friends, we examined the actual narrative of the Thirty Years' War. So, if you're ready, if you trust me enough to join me, then from the new year, from January 2020, we will be beginning this epic journey together. I can't wait to see you then, but until then, thanks so much for joining me for the last 15 episodes of 17th Century Warfare. You're the best. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas, and I'll see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.